continue to see the same or similar beds for sale on the internet, both on Wayfair and other e-commerce e platforms. And, you know, they were under a different name, a different um, style number, but it looked like the same bed and it looked like the same ladder. And after about a year of seeing that, I got so frustrated, I literally started buying bunk beds. In today's episode, we talked to Dan Mordarski, the lead attorney in a record-breaking products liability case in which a Ohio federal jury delivered a $787 million verdict against a foreign bunk bed manufacturer. The verdict favored the estate of a toddler who tragically lost his life while playing with his siblings, becoming wedged between the top rung of a bunk bed ladder and the frame, ultimately asphyxiating. The purpose of Lawsuit Review is to learn from the best lawyers in the country. This is a podcast made for plaintiff and referral lawyers and sponsored by my firm, Kirker Garcia. The only thing we ask is that if you're a lawyer who has a case similar to the one discussed in today's video, please consider joint venturing it with our guest. Their contact information is included in the research summary. But if you have another type of case that involves catastrophic injury or high stakes litigation, please consider joint venturing your case with Kirker Garcia. We pride ourselves on maximizing case values by routinely taking cases to trial and winning. Our reputation at the courthouse has allowed our firm to routinely secure top dollar settlements. Additionally, we joint venture cases on a 50-50 basis with our referring counsel and front all case expenses. We have paid tens of millions of dollars in referral fees over just the past few years. But most importantly, we aren't afraid to recommend another law firm if we feel that somebody else is a better fit for your case. So if you have a case that you are considering joint venturing, click the link in the description to contact us and we'll respond as soon as possible. Thank you. The name of the case is Charles H. Cooper, administrator of the estate of JB, deceased minor, versus Longwood Force Products et al. Gentlemen, how did y'all get involved in this case? For, for me, it started with a call from uh, a, a, another lawyer, Steve Rabel, here in Ohio, who had um, tried to find a lawyer to take a product liability claim involving a, a dead two-year-old boy in a bunk bed. Uh, he had checked with several other uh, firms in Ohio, and everyone that had looked at it had turned it down. Um, when I uh, got the initial information, I looked at it. I also turned it down. Um, uh, but something bothered me. Uh, it bothered me that a, a little boy died in a product that was intended to be in his bedroom. Um, and the same day that I sent an email back to Steve saying that I, I was going to decline the case, later that evening I sent another email saying, um, I, I don't know if I could prove anything. I don't know if I could prove a defect, but um, this kid shouldn't have died. And so I'm willing to jump in if you haven't found another lawyer. And so that's kind of how it started. Can you elaborate more on, on the facts of the case? What exactly was the defect? What, what happened? There's a standard sort of slanted uh, bunk bed ladder that attaches to the top rung of the bunk bed. Uh, there is a gap between the top step of the ladder and the, the bunk bed rail. Um, there's a safety standard for how big that gap can be. Um, in this situation, the um, 
the gap between that step and the rail was able to get larger and larger as the ladder lifted up. And so in this situation, we got a little boy that climbs up the ladder, turns around, and is trying to come down the ladder, sort of facing outward. His feet go through that gap. And as he tries to wiggle and struggle, the ladder goes up, the gap gets larger, and then gravity pulls everything down and compresses his, his lungs. The elevator version of it is you can't have a gap in a ladder that's medium-sized. If it's small enough, a kid can't fit through. If it's big enough, they'll go right through. If it's medium-sized, they get stuck and could die. It was a medium-sized hole at the top of this ladder. Gotcha. And who, who issues these safety standards that uh, the manufacturer neglected? That's it. The Con Consumer Product Safety Commission, as well as um, sort of ASTM, the American Standard Testing, um, they, they sort of collaborate together to create the safety standards for bunk beds. Okay, so you sign up this case. How do you identi identify the potential defendants? Well, th that, that became a little bit of a struggle because we knew that the mom purchased the bed on Wayfair so we could find them. The name on the outside of the box was Longwood Forest Products, Inc. Uh, we weren't quite sure who that was, but their name's on the box, so we knew that they were going to be a defendant. But we weren't sure. We couldn't find out who the actual manufacturer was. And so the only way to find that out was to file a lawsuit. And then once Wayfair responded, ask them who the manufacturer was. And that's how we found Moash. Gotcha. And where did you file this lawsuit? Um, in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. It was first filed in state court and then removed to federal court. And just from my notes here, it says that it was a jury of six individuals. Is that correct? When you tried the case? That's right. Was that because this is in probate court or, or why, why were there only six jurors? In, in federal court, um, you can do a jury of uh, six. And that was, that was the judge's preference in this case. So that was pursuant to the, the judge's wishes. Um, and you're permitted, you need a unanimous jury in federal court, but it can be as small as six jurors. Tell me about your judge. Who did you draw? Judge Michael Watson. Uh, who's a very well-respected judge here in Columbus. He used to be on the state court bench, the common pleas bench, and then the court of appeals. Um, but he's been on the federal bench for probably roughly 20 years. Um, and he's an outstanding trial judge in every respect. So you're in front of Judge Watson. How's discovery in this case? Do, does Wayfair cooperate? Is it easy to get information on who the manufacturers were and... So, so I think the only thing that was easy was to get the name of the manufacturer. Everything else in discovery was, was somewhat of a battle. Um, in our federal courthouse here, um, the magistrates generally uh, addressed discovery issues, and we had an outstanding uh, magistrate, uh, Magistrate Jolson. Uh, so she was uh, instrumental in allowing us to get uh, additional documents. Um, and in fact, even the somewhat extraordinary step of allowing us to depose one of Wayfair's in-house lawyers. And that we, we obtained some pretty valuable information uh, in that deposition that we probably wouldn't have gotten from anybody else. What information specifically did you obtain by that? And, and how, how were you able to depose their in-house counsel? Wayfair, like a lot of product manufacturers, have uh, you know a, a system in place to... Uh, 
address products and defects and compliance with uh, government standards and things like that. In this situation, as we were deposing other non-lawyers, um, everything seemed to point back to a committee that was that was um, uh, headed up by this one in-house lawyer. Um, and so, as the as the kind of name kept coming back up, the committee kept coming back up. Um, we finally asked uh, the court for an order allowing us to take that deposition. Um, now, is it your assumption that Wayfair strategically had their in-house counsel making these directions in order to create some sort of veil of secrecy that they wouldn't be able to get deposed? Um, so, so not really. Um, and, and to be honest, there are some really, really bad actors in this story. Um, and then there are people that we think more or less made some mistakes. Um, I would put Wayfair more in the mistake category than the, the really bad actor category. We, we think Moash is a bad actor. We think Longwood is a bad actor. Uh, we think Wayfair uh, kind of kind of dropped the ball here and there, but not 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 one of those uh, companies that really was trying to do the wrong thing for an extra profit. Gotcha. Now, are, were these bad actor manufacturers? Moash is the manufacturer of the bed, and they were they were the worst actor in my view. Yeah. So, so Moash is lo located in Vietnam, and they used a network of what's referred to as importers. Uh, so these are companies that import products that are designed and manufactured outside the United States. Um, one of the you know, the struggles that the U.S. government um, has been trying to deal with is foreign products coming into the United States that don't comply with safety standards. Uh, and so back in about 2009 timeframe, uh, the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, changed the law to require importers to be responsible for ensuring that the products that they import comply with these safety standards, especially when it uh, involves children products. So uh, in this case, Longwood was that importer. Um, when you sort of think about an importer, you maybe have this image of a, a, a big giant company that brings in, you know, lots of products and they have a sophisticated process. This was uh, literally an LLC owned by a, uh, a single person that had his wife and his, his son working in the company. They had no safety controls. They had no um, policies or procedures. They did nothing that was required under the statutes and regulations to ensure that products complied with the uh, wow. consumer product okay. safety. So it's just a mom and pop shop. Did, did they hire lawyers? Did they, you know, what was their defense in all of this? So, um, they had insurance, so the insurance um, hired lawyers for them. Um, and, you know, I think initially the, the defense was uh, there's nothing defective here. It complied with the standards. This is an unfortunate, very sad, tragic situation, but there's no defect. Um, and in almost every uh, child death or tragedy, there's always this underlying uh, blame the parents argument. Geez, where was mom? Why, why wasn't mom watching the kids? 
Um, that, that's a, almost always a, a defense somewhere along the line. And that's pretty much how they started the case. And it really took a lot of digging to find out, one, what happened, and then two, uh, who was responsible? Why, why, why wasn't this caught uh, before this? Right. And, and did the importer, the manufacturer, have any sort of prior notice that this was a defective product? So uh, that, that's kind of an interesting um, uh, question. In this situation, you know, there is, um, you know, evidence reaching back to like the 1970s of uh, children dying in bunk beds and bunk bed ladders. Um, and what the industry and then the government eventually realized is that we can't anticipate all the ways that children will fit their body in a, in a bed. So we have to anticipate as much as we can anticipate and then um, eliminate what's called entrapment hazards. So there are these standards that were developed by, um, you know, really smart people in the medical community and biomedical communities to, to figure out where can an arm or a leg or a head or a neck or a torso fit and make sure that we have standards. So we design these children's products to make sure that children can't put themselves in a spot to create what's called positional asphyxiation. So are there examples of this particular situation? Maybe one or two, but the practical reality is, is that this is a standard positional asphyxiation issue for a child's um, bunk bed. Um, that's, that's what they, they needed to eliminate is the potential of having a child get caught here. Going back to the manufacturer, because they were based in Vietnam, did they have any participation in this lawsuit or did they just ignore everybody? They did not. We were able to, Dan was able to secure service um, in, in multiple ways. Um, and we were able to establish, or I should say Dan was able to establish that they had noticed because there were communications about the lawsuit between the importer and the manufacturer. Um, but the manufacturer did not participate and ultimately defaulted. So they default. So the case is essentially against Wayfair, the, the, uh, the platform in which they bought it on and the importer, correct? Yes. I mean, the case remained against all three defendants, but Moash, right. the manufacturer had defaulted. It was not, was not participating, was not actively litigating. Now, now was Wayfair in the importer's position because they defaulted just to, to blame the manufacturer? Were they just pointing the finger at the empty chair? So they, they really couldn't do that because they were all sort of intertwined. Um, I think they would have liked to have done that, but um, under Ohio law, when you can't get the actual manufacturer into the suit, Ohio law says that the seller of the product uh, is responsible for the manufacturer. So that's what put Wayfair kind of right in the crosshairs along with uh, Longwood Forest products. So they couldn't, there, there's no really empty chair if we were to try it against Wayfair and Longwood. And so ultimately what happened is as the trial date was approaching, um, Wayfair and Longwood decided to settle with us. Um, and so we were able to secure, uh, you know, a significant settlement for the family, which left us with just the claim against um, uh, Moash, the original manufacturer. Gotcha. So when you went and tried this case, 
how, how does that look trying a case against a, a defendant who, who isn't there? You know, it was interesting. Uh, it was a unique experience, certainly. Uh, first and probably last time that I'll have it. Um, and it was strangely difficult, I found. Um, there was a um, an absence that was certainly noticed in the courtroom by everyone. But as a, as a trial lawyer, um, in the adversarial context, you're used to having your opponent to push off against, essentially, right? And without having a defense there to push off against, um, a lot of our typical strategies uh, kind of went out the window. Um, and we had to do some stuff uh, on the fly that we kind of hadn't anticipated, um, but ultimately we think were effective. But it was, it was a strange experience. And we think it's part of um, what bothered the jury was that Moash wasn't even willing to, didn't have the courage to show up, defend themselves, um, have enough respect for what happened in the death of this child to come and state their case. Tom, Tom, let me let me just throw in on this because it really was, I mean, it was a uni- unique situation um, to not have a defendant there in front of the jury. Um, I also found it uh, unsettling. Um, it, it sounds like it's going to be great, right? It sounds like you got a free swing and and you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want, and no one's going to no one's going to push back. That that was not a great feeling in the courtroom. Um, cause John's absolutely right. I think we all do our best work on, for example, cross-examination or when we respond to some of the defense arguments, uh, in trial that helps our argument and helps, um, to, to kind of persuade and, and to have no one at that other table was, was strange and unsettling. Um, but what we did do is we told the jury that we wanted them there. We, we told them they know about the lawsuit. We would rather have them in this courtroom uh, to answer for what they did. Uh, and, and, and they just refused to show up. And, and what, what is your hope by obtaining that verdict? So we don't believe that we're going to be able to collect $787 million. Um, and we never thought we'd likely collect much or all of the verdict. Um, our goal Um, as with many trial lawyers doing the work that we do, is to right a wrong and protect people. Um, Our hope was that we would be able to secure a verdict that was so significant in terms of the dollars that it would catch attention, right? As it has, (laughs) for example, by the fact that we're doing this interview with you, right? And we wanted it to hit the um, industry as well. Um, because the hope is that product manufacturers out there, when they are aware that if they put a dangerous, defective product in the market, that has un- it's unreasonably dangerous and might lead to something like the death of a two-year-old, they could face something like a $787 million jury verdict and therefore do the cost-benefit analysis and decide, even if it's a little more expensive, it's better for us to make sure our products are safe enough to be out on the market. And so we'll never know the names or the identities of the children, but the hope is that somewhere someday there's a child who's on a ladder that's not defective because somebody heard about this verdict and their life was saved. Tom, there's a little bit of a story though, uh, behind the number itself, if, if you don't mind. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that I think 
all plaintiff's lawyers struggle with is how do you ask for a number, and especially a number, a, a significant number? How, how, do you, how do you do that? Because there's this fear that if you ask for too much, a jury's going to look at you and say, well, that's, that's crazy. Well, well, that's too much money. And, and we knew in this case that we were going to ask for more than $100 million. Um, we didn't know how much we were going to ask for at the beginning when we started, but we knew at some point we had to, we had to come up with a strategy to ask for a number in that range. And so it was, quite frankly, John's idea. So I'm going to let John explain uh, what we asked for and how we got to that number and then what the jury did with that. Sure. So thanks, Dan. It was, I believe it was the Friday before trial started on Monday and we were talking about our ask. Um, and what we decided to do was ask the jury for $522 million. Um, and the reason that we picked $522 million was because Josiah Boone died on May 22nd, on 522. Um, so part of our trial strategy then was to refer to the date of his death throughout the trial as 522. When Dan had Josiah's mother on the stand, you know, tell me about 522. Tell me about what happened on 522. And she said, oh, it was the worst day of my life, that sort of thing. And the jury maybe thought it was a little odd that we weren't saying May 22nd. All right, we maybe said it once. The rest of the trial, we said 522. This is what happened on 522. Um, so that symbolically, in closing argument, we could stand up and say, let's make the number 522 have a little bit of a positive connotation for this mother and this father. It is and will always be the worst day of their lives. But let's let 522 also mean something good, the day they were able to stand up um, against this kind of misconduct and that sort of thing. So we split closing arguments. I did the closing on compensatory damages. Dan did the closing on punitive damages. And the total that we asked for was $522 million. The jury actually awarded $522 million in punitives alone. Separately, they awarded uh, 90, it was 90 million in, in 175. I think it was 90 million on the wrongful death case and 175 million on the pre-death pain and suffering case. Um, so the jury gave us, you know, whatever it is, a quarter billion dollars more than we asked for. Um, but they um, they understood the symbolism of that, 5, of that 522 and they, and they made their voice heard by putting that number on the punitive damages line. Wow. Congratulations. That, that is, um, that's amazing trial work. Um, now, now that you've gotten this verdict, ha have other people started reaching out? Do you have, have you identified this as a systemic problem with products defects and in, in the Wayfair space, the Wayfair type furniture space? So that's a, that's a really good question. Um, uh, about, uh, a, a year before we tried the case, when Wayfair and Longwood were still in the case, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission recalled the bed based upon the defect in the ladder. I think that was one of the things that helped uh, us settle with Wayfair and Longwood. But the, the recall was in place. And quite frankly, the mom was thrilled. That was the only reason she wanted to file a lawsuit is to protect other kids. It was never about money. It was just about, can we, can we make sure this doesn't happen to somebody else? So we get the recall. And as we continue to kind of uh, wrap up the case against Wayfair, 
I continued to see the same or similar beds for sale on the internet, both on Wayfair and other e-commerce e platforms. And, you know, they were under a different name, a different um, style number, but it looked like the same bed and it looked like the same ladder. And after about a year of seeing that, I got so frustrated, I literally started buying bunk beds. And I bought, I don't know, five or six bunk beds that looked like it had the same ladder. And none of them had the Longwood Angel Line name on them. But the first box that shows up at my house is in an, a Longwood Forest Products box. And it's the same box, the same bed. What I ordered online had a different name um, when I ordered it on Wayfair, but that's the box that came. And I was furious. Um, and then I started to think, well, maybe, maybe they changed the design. Maybe they put the recall fix in this product. So I opened up the box. I put together in the entire bed. It was the same design. It didn't have the recall fix. Um, so that was, um, was very upsetting for me. Um, and, and part of uh, the motivation for trying this case is to um, kind of make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. Um, and so after we got the verdict and some of the media coverage uh, addressed the fact that they were still selling the bed, um, that prompted a telephone call from um, Wayfair's in-house lawyers to me saying, hey, what do you, why, why do you keep saying that we're selling these recalled beds? We, we, we aren't. Um, all the beds that we're selling have the recall hardware in them. And I said, not the one that I bought. And I sent them all of the purchase information, photographs, step-by-step. Step. Um, and shortly after that, we, we found out that uh, they forced Longwood to send out supplemental letters to everyone that had purchased that bed, um, explaining the recall and providing the, the, the recall hardware. So, uh, again, uh, that situation, um, I, I blame Longwood. Um, I, I think they duped Wayfair in some respects. Now, I think Wayfair could have been a little bit more hands-on uh, to make sure that the products weren't coming out and, quite frankly, maybe not use Longwood as a supplier anymore. Um, uh, but, but that was part of um, the motivation to take this case to a jury because we could have just gone to the judge and gotten a default judgment entry. Um, that wouldn't have done anything to spread the word and it wouldn't have done anything to make Wayfair change uh, a little bit of, of their practices. Right. Is Wayfair still working with Longwood? Um, I, I think after my telephone conversation, um, I, I think they severed their ties with Longwood. Well, great work, uh, John and Dan. If anybody wants to reach out to you because maybe they have a similar case they want to refer, or God forbid, they're a potential plaintiff, um, wh where where can somebody find you? So um, my email address is dan at mordarskylaw.com. That's M-O-R-D-A-R-S-K-I-L-A-W.com. And our office number is 614-221-3200. And thanks, Tom. My email address is jcamillas at camillaslaw.com, or you go to my website, camillaslaw.com. 
the office line is 614-992-1000. Anybody who wants to call my cell could get me at 614-264-9837. And uh, yes, I, and I'm sure I can speak for Dan, would be happy to help anybody who has a similar case uh, in their fight for justice. And Tom, let me let me just throw one more thing in there. Uh, John's a little too humble to to, to plug this, but um, John is probably one of the nation's uh, uh, leading experts on jury um, jury consulting and, and, and selecting a jury. Um, he has a nationwide practice, travels all across the country, helping other lawyers to do focus groups and pick juries, uh, create shadow juries. Um, and so I'm going to, on behalf of John, plug him uh, for, for, for that work because, um, quite frankly, when we started the case, we did a very early focus group, and we found out um, a lot of things that concerned us about what a jury might do uh, when they initially heard about the case. Um, things like blaming the mother, things like, um, you, you know, this doesn't look defective to me, so it's not defective. And so that helped us to really focus throughout the case to address those things that maybe the jury might not let us know until after the verdict. Um, and so that's really the value of having someone like John uh, on your team is to, to do an early focus group or, or assess the situation and then to be there at trial and help pick a jury and do closing and, and develop themes and things like that. Thanks, Dan. It's kind of you to say. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And uh, that's it.